Welcome to This Is Your Body, the podcast for students of the human body or for those who are just morbidly curious. My name is Dr. Bill. In part two of this episode, our topic is asthma. Now, the rotten diseases of the South, the guts griping, ruptures, catars, loads of gravel in the back, lethargies, cold palsies, raw eyes, dirt-rotten livers, wheezing lungs. This is one of my more graphic quotes from Shakespeare, specifically from Act 5, Scene 1 of his comedy, Troilus and Cressida. I will perhaps forgo any commentary on the first few maladies recited in this quote and focus on the latter and its relevance to the current podcast. In part one of episode four, I spoke about the anatomy and physiology of breathing. In the second part, we will probe the disordered anatomy and physiology of the condition known as asthma. The recording that you heard previously is the sound of a cough and a wheeze, two of the more common signs of an altogether common respiratory condition we know as asthma. Over 7% of individuals in the U.S. and over 8% in Canada have been diagnosed with asthma. In fact, asthma is the most common chronic disease among children in North America and the third most common chronic disease overall. And as many of you will already know, asthma is one of the pre-existing conditions which is linked to poor outcomes in people afflicted with COVID-19, which is caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And as ever, I believe that knowledge is power, especially when it is relevant to health. For these reasons, I think it's worthwhile to have a closer look at this very prevalent condition. In this podcast, we'll tackle questions such as, how does asthma present itself? What is the underlying disordered physiology and anatomy? And how is asthma treated? We talked about coughs in episode 4, part 1, so let's start with the other common sign of asthma, namely the wheeze. First, a wee reminder. A sign is something you see, and a symptom is what you may experience. A wheeze is usually described as a high-pitched, continuous whistling sound, and a stethoscope may be required to hear a wheeze, but in more severe cases of asthma, it can be obvious without any assistance. A wheeze may be heard during inspiration, but with asthma, it is more common during expiration, as you would have heard in the sound clip of a wheeze at the beginning. The cause? Essentially, it's obstruction of some part of the conducting portion of the airways. A good analogy is that of the sound made by a wind instrument such as a flute or clarinet. In fact, the tone and pitch of a wheeze can depend on the location of the obstruction. However, many different respiratory conditions can cause a wheeze, from bronchiolitis in children, which is an inflammation in the bronchi, or breathing tubes, to emphysema. In addition to the wheeze, there are usually other signs and symptoms. For example... It is often apparent in people with asthma that there is increased work of breathing. Recall from the first episode that forced expiration requires extra muscles, including the abdominal neck muscles. As well, someone who is working harder to breathe will often have an increased respiratory rate as the body attempts to compensate for obstructed airflow. Somebody suffering from long-term asthma may also exhibit physical changes in the respiratory tract, which we'll discuss in a bit as well as a change in chest diameter. As for symptoms, what you may experience, we should include shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, 
and, no surprise, panic. A primary health care provider will take into account all of these clinical signs and symptoms, but will also likely employ a variety of other tests, such as spirometry, to establish a diagnosis of asthma. Two spirometric tests include the FEV1, or forced expiratory volume in one second, and the FVC, or forced vital capacity. If you've ever performed this test, you'll know that you first take a deep breath, then exhale as fast and as hard as you can. The amount of air that you're able to exhale in one second is equal to the FEV. The total amount of air you can forcibly exhale is the FVC. People suffering from asthma have an obstruction to airflow, so you could expect that the FEV1 to be reduced. Try exhaling hard with your mouth wide open, then try it with the straw between your lips. If it is a large straw, say what you would use for a Slurpee, and no, 7-Eleven is not sponsoring this podcast, it's hard enough. But with an even smaller, soft drink straw, well, you can see where I'm going with this. FVC will also be reduced, but not as much as the FEV1. So, if you take the ratio of FEV1 to FVC, you should see in people with asthma that this ratio will decrease. Not too sure about this? Remember your basic math. The FEV1 is the numerator on top. The FVC is the denominator on the bottom of this equation. If the number on top, the numerator, gets smaller, then the ratio gets smaller. The FEV1-FVC ratio is one of the pieces of the puzzle in diagnosing asthma. Another test employed in examining respiratory function related to asthma includes peak flow, which is done more easily with a handheld device, but it only tells you about the maximal amount of airflow during exhalation. A more informative test is the methacholine challenge. This is actually what's called a provocation test. Methacholine can cause bronchoconstriction, or a reduction in the diameter of the bronchioles. A person being tested would inhale aerosolized methacholine, and spirometry used to assess the effect of methacholine, as well as how well someone recovers to specific drugs that can reverse bronchoconstriction. But more on these later. So, we've talked about the signs and symptoms of asthma, and how this condition might be diagnosed. But what causes it? Let's go back again to the wheeze, and the fact that it is caused by constricted airways. There are at least two mechanisms behind this, and one involves a little trick of anatomy. The conducting portions of your respiratory tract include the trachea, bronchi, and increasingly smaller portions called bronchioles, which I just mentioned. A lot of the airway is held open, or patent if you want to use a good medical term, by rings of cartilage. Heck, you can even verify this on yourself. Starting at your Adam's apple, or thyroid cartilage, palpate, meaning feel, along the length of your trachea, which is immediately below. If you do this, you'll find that there are hard rings which are comprised of hyaline cartilage. A quirk of anatomy is that the further down, or inferior, you go down along the conductive portions of the airways, the less cartilage there is. So, by the time you get to the smallest branches of the bronchioles, and trust me, you can't feel these, there is no longer any cartilage, but there is plenty of smooth muscle. And what does muscle do? Well, it contracts, of course. So, in most forms of asthma, that smooth muscle contracts, narrowing the opening 
or lumen of the airways. The other mechanism which underlies bronchoconstriction is related to the fact that asthma is an inflammatory disease. For the full story on inflammation, you'll need to listen to my podcast on the same topic. For now, we'll need to just start with the fact that blood vessels during inflammation get leaky. And in any ways, this allows clear fluid in blood, called plasma, to escape the smaller blood vessels and build up in the tissues of the airways. This causes tissues to swell, which we call airway edema. At the same time, cells lining the airways secrete mucus. Think of this as similar to what happens when a drain pipe gets clogged. Taken together, between the bronchoconstriction, edema, and mucus buildup, airflow can be so greatly reduced that you simply cannot get enough to meet your needs. To make matters worse, over time, the airways and asthma patients can be remodeled, physically remodeled, and this can involve smooth muscles surrounding the bronchioles increasing in size, a condition called hypertrophy, and number, called hyperplasia, which will further limit the diameter of small airways. Where am I? Oh yeah, we've covered the signs and symptoms of asthma, how it can be diagnosed, and mechanisms associated with bronchoconstriction. But the $64 question still is, what triggers asthma in some people and not in others? For the answer to that, we need to backtrack a bit and bring in a bit more information about some of the cells of the inflammatory and immune pathways. In a nutshell, the jobs of the inflammatory and immune responses are to protect you from non-self or material that is foreign to your body. White blood cells called T-cells and tissue cells called mast cells play big roles here. T-cells are important regulators of the immune response, as well as inflammation, and come in different flavors, as I call them, or types. One such type is the helper T-cell type 2, or Th2 cell. Some folks have Th2 cells which are sensitized to particular non-self molecules, which we can call allergens. When these Th2 cells encounter allergens, they go into attack mode. They produce molecules that cause inflammation, called cytokines, which initiate parts of the inflammatory pathways and remodeling processes. Th2 cells also cause overproduction of an antibody called immunoglobulin E, or IgE, and this in turn activates other white blood cells called eosinophils, which also play important roles during the inflammatory response. And since we've just talked about immunoglobulin E, please humor me with a little diversion. You may have heard of something called the atopic triad. This refers to three apparently different conditions, asthma, allergies, and eczema. In future podcasts, I'll discuss what we know about these other diseases, but what unites asthma, allergies, and eczema is this. They are all typically characterized by elevated levels of immunoglobulin E. Still, other cells that can respond to allergens are the so-called mast cells, and these are really the heavy hitters during the inflammatory response. When mast cells encounter molecules they recognize as non-self or allergens, they can respond in a bunch of ways, but most importantly, they release a molecule called histamine. Now, you've probably heard of histamine, or at least antihistamines. Histamine is a very powerful bronchoconstrictor, meaning it reduces airway diameter, and vasodilator, meaning it increases the diameter of arterioles. 
And to add insult to injury, histamine released by one mast cell can cause other mast cells to release more histamine in what we physiologists like to call a positive feedback loop. It boils down to some people having Th2 cells and mast cells that can recognize allergens, whereas others do not. To more fully explore why this is the case would require more time than we have in a 20-minute or so podcast. Instead, I think it's more worthwhile to talk about some of the allergens known to trigger asthma. Common agents include dust mites, tobacco smoke, cockroaches, molds, and pollens. Other agents which can provoke asthma-like symptoms, but which don't actually cause swelling, include smoke, exercise, perfumes, drugs such as aspirins, and even sudden changes in temperature. In the latter case, this is usually bronchoconstriction without the inflammatory component. The point of going through all this anatomy and physiology, and I do have a point, is that to arrive at an understanding of the physiology of asthma also helps us to understand or appreciate how it can be treated. So, in our last segment, let's go there. Let's discuss what treatments are available for asthma and how they address the fundamental disordered physiology of this condition. First, avoiding a trigger is always a good thing to do. But that's not always easy, which leads us back to a fundamental aspect of asthma, smooth muscle constriction narrowing the airways. One of the primary types of drugs for addressing this element of asthma are the so-called beta-adrenergic agonists, or beta-agonists. Agonists are molecules that essentially act as keys that bind to and open receptors, which you can think of as cellular locks. Epinephrine, or adrenaline, it's the same thing, is an example of a naturally occurring key that fits a specific lock, called a beta-adrenergic receptor. Drugs called beta-agonists bind to the same beta-adrenergic receptor as does epinephrine, including ones found on smooth muscles. The beta-agonist binds to its receptor, and one effect is that potassium ions are allowed to escape the smooth muscle cells, preventing them from contracting, and therefore causing bronchodilation. Pharmaceutical science has developed several types of beta-agonists, which can be either short-acting beta-agonists, or SABAs, or long-acting beta-agonists, which we'll call LABAs. An example of a SABA is Selmeterol, also known by its common brand name, Ventolin. As for an example of a LABA, I'll give you one of those a little bit later. Both SABAs and LABAs are drugs that are inhaled, which bring them directly into contact with the lining of the airways and the smooth muscles directly below. However, SABAs and LABAs only address part of the problem. Remember, asthma is an inflammatory condition. To help with that aspect of the disease, we can use drugs called steroids, which are potent anti-inflammatory molecule. Here's a little hint about drug names. Drugs with an O-N-E at the end, such as cortisone, are examples of steroids. Both beta agonists and steroids can be used either separately or in combination. For example, one drug with the brand name Symbacort actually has two ingredients, budesonide, which is a steroid, and formiterol, which is a LABA. But let's say that somebody has really severe asthma and these drugs aren't cutting it. Fortunately, there are other tools in the toolbox, including high-potency steroids, other LABAs or SABAs, as well as drugs which prevent mast cells from releasing histamine. The new kids on the block for asthma treatment include the so-called biologics, 
and these include molecules such as synthetic antibodies, which specifically target parts of the asthma cascade. We've nearly come to our end here in this podcast about asthma, and we only have time for a couple of burning questions. So here goes. Burning question number one. My grandma used to tell me to have some tea when I had a wheeze or a cough. Does this actually work? You know, grandmas are pretty wise. And in this case, she was onto something. Teas contain a molecule called theophylline, which can do double duty. It can cause bronchodilation by relaxing smooth muscles. It can also reduce inflammation. Amazing, huh? Bottom line, listen to grandma. Burning question number two. Why is my doctor telling me to rinse my mouth out after I use my inhaler? If you've asked this question, you are probably on an inhaler that has a steroid in it. Steroids reduce the inflammatory response, but also reduce some of the immune factors in your mouth. If you don't rinse, yeasts that are always present in your mouth can overgrow, causing a condition called thrush. It's pretty gross. Thrush looks like fine cottage cheese growing in your mouth. So, yes, please, by all means, rinse your mouth out after using an inhaler with the steroid in it. Burning question number three. What happens if I take too many puffs on my inhaler? Well, nothing good, especially if it contains either a saba or a laba. The main reason not to overdo it is that the beta agonists in these medications can also bind to similar but slightly different receptors in your cardiovascular system. This can cause your heart to race and even elevate your blood pressure. This can be dangerous if you've already got hypertension. Another bottom line, listen to your grandma, your primary care provider, and your pharmacist. And so with that, we've come to the end of our windy words on wheezes. Are you hypoxemic from the hype? Or have you been soothed with steroids? Whichever the case, I wish you all, dear listeners, non-melodious breathing. Dr. Bill, signing off for now.